What's going on, everybody? Uh, my name is Jordan. Shout out to everybody who is here. Shout out to everybody who's normally at the 10, but today you got that extra hour in. <laughs> we know who comes to which one, and I can tell you. We'll see you after service. No. Uh, shout out to everybody who's here, especially those who are here for the first time. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, extremely grateful that you all have joined with us uh, today. So before we get started in today's message, I want to pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you know what we have walked into this building or sat down on the couch with uh, today. Lord, you know the, the joys of the previous week. You know the challenges of the previous week as well. Lord, no matter where we find ourselves, I pray that your word would meet us in a really powerful way. Lord, comfort those who need to be comforted. Challenge those who need to be challenged. Instruct us for those of us who need to be instructed. Lord, let your word do all the heavy lifting that we need to be done today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So pastors are like really unreliable people when it comes to being excited about sermon series because I'm excited about every sermon series. So take that with a grain of salt. But I have been really excited about this sermon series on the Holy Spirit. It's been something that has been personally challenging me and really making me rethink the Christian life in and of itself. One thing that we've talked about when we first started the series is that the Holy Spirit doesn't make the Christian life better. It makes the Christian life possible. And that it's almost impossible and really inconceivable to think about a version of Christianity that is detached from the Holy Spirit fueling, guiding, teaching, comforting everyone who has placed their faith in Christ. Now, one of the scriptures that we read the first week is from John 16 and 7, and it's a really profound scripture. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. What Jesus says here in John 16 and 7 is something that's profound, and I don't want you to miss it. He says that it is better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than it is to have him, Jesus, beside you. Think about how you would rank that. If you had to choose between having the access to Jesus to walk beside you day after day after day, who in here wouldn't choose to be able to walk with Jesus, to be able to ask him questions, to be able to have Jesus pray for you? To be able to have Jesus being the one who's instructing you and telling you right and wrong. And Jesus says, as amazing as that would be, the Holy Spirit inside of you is better than that. Now, one of the reasons I said this, this series has been really challenging the way I see Christianity is because if we took Jesus face value at his words, we would be so deeply invested in the ministry of the Holy Spirit that I don't think any of our operation would be the same. One of my favorite authors, a man named A.W. Tozer, he said, if you were to remove the Holy Spirit from the American church, 95% of what we do would go on undeterred. Like the vast majority of the things that we do, we wouldn't even feel a difference. He goes on to say that we might go months before we realize the Holy Spirit has actually left us. But if you reverse that and, talks about, and he talked about the early church and he said, if you were to remove the Holy Spirit from the early church, they would have noticed immediately because their life was so dependent on the Holy Spirit. They weren't so dependent on the comforts and the luxuries that we have in front of us today. 
And so this series has hopefully been something that is recharging and igniting for us a passion to grow as followers of Jesus, for those of us who have put our faith in him, by specifically attuning to, learning from, and being in relation with God who is the Holy Spirit who is on the inside of us. Ephesians 3 and 20 reminded me of the power of the Holy Spirit this week. It's written by a man named Paul. Paul says this thing. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, let me just hit pause real quick on that. Paul says, God is able to do more than all that you can ask him. God is able to do more than you can even imagine. So if you were to take the limits off of your imagination, Paul says, you haven't even scratched the surface. And he says, it is according to the power that is at work within us. Paul is talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the best ways I know how to talk about this, uh, my wife and I have a goal. Our goal is to go to every national park. Um, And a lot of times we're the only black people in the whole national park, but (laughs) so it's easy to find her when they get lost like there she is right there. Um, but man, one of my favorite trips has been actually to Sequoia National Park uh, a number of years ago. And like, if you ever watch a, if you ever look at a picture of Sequoia National Park, like it does it absolutely no justice. Like photographs do these national parks no justice at all. I'll never forget the first time we drove into Sequoia National Park. My heart just started beating fast. It was like I was walking around and in the presence of giants. These giant trees, these majestic trees made me speechless. I I was just in awe of how beautiful and profound these trees were. And here's the thing about Sequoia National Park. It all started with one acorn. It started with one seed, no bigger than my thumb. And that seed grew into a tree. That tree let off other acorns and other trees grew and so on and so forth. And now... Thousands of years after that acorn was initially planted, you have this giant majestic forest. I think the Holy Spirit's ministry in some ways is like an acorn in our life. It might seem small and insignificant, but with inside of it is the power for something giant. Now, if you stick around faith long enough, if you stick around Jesus long enough, you may be one of those people who later down the line can attest to the power of the Holy Spirit as you look back on the decades of your life with him. And one of the things that I really hope that we all recover is a belief again in what is possible in our lives. What is possible, not because of you and your devotion to God, not not what's possible because you and you figured everything out, but, but what is possible to us because God has given us the Holy Spirit for every single person who has placed their faith in Christ, God has given us the Holy Spirit. And so last week, we, want to talk, we, we started to talk about the conversation of, well, if God has given us this power, then how do we access this power? How do we actually draw from and grow by this power? And one of the scriptures that we looked at uh, really talked about the posture that we need to have. Now, posture is kind of a Christian-y word, and I wasn't going to use it, but then I was like, this is actually the best word, so let me just use it. Posture is a particular way of dealing with or considering something. So it's the way you deal with something. It's an approach or an attitude. And last week, we talked about the approach that you and I need to have with God, which is you and I are going through the painful process of considering the Holy Spirit more wise, more necessary, more profound, 
more intelligent than even our own wills. Here's a scripture we looked at last week from John 7, 38 and 39. It's Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says this, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him or her. He said this about the Spirit. And one of the ways that Jesus describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit is like a stream that is flowing on the inside of you. Here's what we talked about last week. Water always fills empty and low spaces. Here was a big idea from last week. In order for us to be full of the Holy Spirit, we must be empty of ourselves. In order for you to be full of the Holy Spirit and his ministry, in order to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be empty of ourselves. And we do this through the daily and painful act of praying to surrender ourselves. And last week, we looked, at the Holy, we looked at the Lord's Prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray, your will be done. And this is something that God instructs us to pray on a daily basis because he knows how quickly our will is to come into place and that we're so full of ourselves, we're, full, we're so full of our own self-will that there's no room for the stream of the Holy Spirit to fill us. Last week, during this benediction, if y'all ever miss a sermon, just Rewatch the Renaissance service and then fast forward to the benediction and you'll get everything that you need. Um, Lester, last week in his benediction, quoted Matthew 10 uh, and 39 about what it feels like and what it, the necessity to um, really lay down our lives. And from Jesus, he says this, anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. That the way up is actually down. The way to connect with God, the way to be full of the Spirit is by emptying ourselves of ourselves, of our self-will. Now, I said this and I want to repeat it. This does not mean that you don't have desire. This doesn't mean that you don't have priorities and goals. This does mean that we work as hard as we can, we pray as hard as we can, and we leave the outcome to a good and sovereign and all-wise God. And so, if week one we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, last week we started to look at one of the biggest problems and obstacles to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that was an internal obstacle of our self-will, which refuses the sovereignty, the wisdom of God, the Holy Spirit, because we're so full of our our own agenda. And this week, I want to talk about another problem and obstacle to what it looks like to live a life full of the Holy Spirit. And this problem is not internal as much as it is external. Today we're talking about distraction. You know, this whole week I was actually, and last night I was talking to my wife and I was, I was really, um, man, just almost just down on myself this whole week because I was like, Lord, how can I talk to people about distraction when I am like so distracted? And I feel like the Lord released me and was like, well, you know more about distraction than everybody does. So just <laughs> get off your high horse and talk to the people So today, I'm not on Mount Olympus telling you what I have figured out, what I'm so perfect in. Today, I want to talk about uh, distraction, not as a a professor, but a journeyman along this journey with you, trying to pay more attention to God. Now, very quickly, I do want to give a big caveat before we move on, because some of the things that dominate your attention right now is not a distraction, it's grief. For some of you, you're grieving like real things, real losses, real people, real situations that are like really sad. And sad situations are meant to be grieved, not ignored, not 
brushed under the rug with some spiritual um, platitudes thrown on top of it. So not everything that dominates your attention should be discarded. Some of those things need to be really paid attention to and trusted that as I grieve, the Lord will be grieving alongside with me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And in your season right now, if this season is a season of grief, if this week is a week of grief, to pay attention to that and to not hear anything I'm saying as a license to dismiss the season where God has you. There is a time for everything. There is a time to laugh and a time to mourn. If that is your time, wherever you find yourself, uh, that is something that the Lord honors and blesses, and he will be with you in your grieving. But for the rest of us in here who may not be grieving something specifically, uh, distraction is a major, major enemy to the Christian life. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that your greatest enemy is not people on the other side of the political aisle. It's not your professor that, that gave you the grade that you didn't think you deserved. It's not your boss who you think is a jerk. It's not your coworkers who you can't stand. The greatest enemy is distraction. That is the greatest rival to the spiritual life that you crave. If you were to think about what your life could be, if we remove distraction, you'd probably be there. I would probably be there. So this is a tremendously important thing. So in my studies this week, uh, I came across something that might sound a little bizarre at first, but stay with me. Uh, medieval Europeans had some really weird ways of torture that they invented. Uh, it's not just soccer that they torture us with. And one of them... <laughs> they would take a victim and tie each of their limbs to a different horse. And then they would have the four horses run as fast as they could in opposite directions until the victim was stretched out. Now, this practice, as barbaric as it was, had a particular name that the French would call it. Oddly enough, the French called this process distraction. When you look at the word distraction, it means literally a pulling apart or a separating. Quite literally, their plan to kill people was through distraction. Now, thankfully, uh, those archaic methods of torture are no longer around, at least in America, but the root of the word remains. To be distracted means that there are things pulling our attention and focus from what matters the most. Distraction kills the best of our intentions. You know, one thing I've realized is, like, distraction and desire are not... Um, they're, they're not op they don't cancel each other out. So you could very well wake up in the morning with a real desire for God, a real desire to do the things that God is calling you to do, and then very quickly be distracted. And distraction kills sometimes even the desires that we have and the efforts that we are uh, wanting to make to follow God. So here's one thing that I've noticed. Um, we are a very distracted people. I am a very distracted person. I was reading this book by uh, an FBI hostage negotiator uh, years ago when I first had kids and I was dealing with a four-year-old. I was like, I need some ammo. I need some ammo. <laughs> and there is a striking amount of similarities between five-year-olds and terrorists. I'm not saying they're all terrorists, but <laughs> they kind of are. But... So in his book called Never Split the Difference, um, he talked about something that like, goes back to the old 80s and 90s movies. You remember Die Hard, for all of you um, uh, geriatric millennials, and uh, <laughs> clap it up for all the geriatric millennials. Thank you. We are, we are a special group of people. So like Die Hard, they would have those scenes in there in the van, and there's like 
the guy Simon would call and everybody would get really quiet and they would all put their headphones on and listen. And it looks like Hollywood fanfare, but in actuality, the author who was an FBI negotiator said, no, this is actually true. And the reason they do this is because people get distracted. And I was like, I had to put the book down for a second. And I was thinking, if you were negotiating with a terrorist in like the most high stakes scenario, surely you'd be paying attention. And what they found is still people don't pay attention. They engage with, in selective listening. They start thinking about what they're going to say next. And people miss large gaps of the conversation because we are incredibly easily distracted. And since we get distracted, we miss out on large gaps of the information that was intended to be communicated to us. Think about it like this. God might be speaking to you. And it's not that he is not speaking. It's not even that we're not wanting to listen, that we don't have a desire to listen. It might just be that we're distracted and we're missing large gaps of what the Spirit would love to say to us. So, in a lot of ways, distraction makes us miss stuff. But there's other times when being distracted is actually really dangerous. Uh, right after I graduated college, I came home and um, I was driving around on a street that I've driven around on a thousand times, and I was distracted. I was driving with my kneecaps, texting people, and this is like the old QWERTY texting. You had to like really make an effort to text somebody. And I was texting somebody, and I put my head up for a split second, and I saw the car in front of me slam on its brakes. I tried to swerve, and then right at that one spot, there was a car that was parked, like this construction van that was parked, and I had no time, and I crashed and totaled my car. I'll never forget my pop's reaction the next day after he came back from the body shop. The car was totaled, and he was just really upset, and I was like, man, RIP to your insurance quotes, because those things are going up, first and foremost. But he wasn't upset about his insurance going up. He might have been, actually, were you upset about the... <laughs> He wasn't upset about the insurance quote going up. He looked at the car and the destruction and said, man, you're lucky to be alive. Looking at the destruction of that car, we could have lost you. Distraction could kill you. It could, it could kill the spiritual life that you, you yearn for. It's an incredibly dangerous thing. It truly will pull you apart in the things. Think about it like this. What the Holy Spirit is trying to grow in you right now, the life, the vitality, it could get killed by distraction. And so I want us to look at some scriptures today where we point our attention toward the Lord and we see a model from Jesus of what it looks like to slow down, to pay attention, to avoid distraction. Now, my goal for us today, if you don't hear anything else, my goal for us today is that you leave here a little less distracted than you were before you got here. It is impossible for you to hit a grand slam and to move from highly distracted to having this perfect Christ-like character embodied in your life. This is a long road and journey of disciplining yourself in discipleship. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. So do not try this for a week and say, I tried it, it didn't work. This is going to take us years and years as we journey to follow in the life and the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Uh, but this is not something that you're going to knock out the park this week. So I want to read a couple of scriptures about Jesus. It says this, Luke 5 and 15, Jesus had just finished teaching these large crowds. And it says, but the news about him spread even more. And large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet often, he often withdrew. Think about that. He often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. 
before Jesus made decisions, major decisions, he did the same thing. Um, before he anointed and, and selected the apostles, it says in Luke 6 and 12, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. After Jesus had done a miracle, the next chapter, it says, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. When Jesus was sad and he needed to grieve, after his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded and killed, it said after he had said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Mark 135 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. So I can read like 10 more scriptures like that, but y'all are very smart people. You know where this is going. Jesus made in incredibly intentional steps to avoid the crowds, to avoid distraction, and routinely, often, he withdrew from everything, and he went to attune to God the Father. One of the questions that's been plaguing me all day is this. If Jesus needed solitude, if the sinless Savior, Jesus, who could withstand every temptation, if he needed solitude, how much more do I? How much more do we? So my goal really today is that we would increase our time away, that you would have a rhythm where we would increase just a little bit more, at least a little bit more, time with solitude, away from distraction, away from all of the things that we have to do so we can attune to God, the Holy Spirit, so we can grow in the way that he is calling us to grow. So how do we make room for silence and solitude with God? The first and foremost thing I think we need to do is we need to normalize difficulty. We need to normalize difficulty. Now for Jordan, what normally happens is I get discouraged when I don't do the things that I said that I was going to do. And since I, in my brain, I kind of told myself it was going to be easier than what it is, I think something is wrong and broken with me. One of the things that is both the gift and a frustration about Christianity is that every day you kind of start over again, right? Every morning you wake up and there's new mercies for you. But at the same time, every day you have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him daily. You can't rely on yesterday's efforts for today's necessities, and so we need to normalize the difficulty of what it looks like for every single day to be a day that you are fighting against distraction. We do not live in a monastery, and even if we did, we would still be distractible. We have schoolwork and jobs, family and friends, kids and emails and Slack messages, dishes to, watch, uh, to wash, meals to cook, apartments to clean, the Knicks to watch in the playoffs, the list goes on and on and on. Now, even though it's the, the, the Holy Spirit's job to sensitize us, this means that it is going to be difficult for you to have solitude, 100%. There's a scripture in Ephesians 3.18 where Paul is talking to the church, and he's given them this beautiful prayer in the third chapter, and he says something in verse 3. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, the word for grasp here in verse 18 is this Greek word, katalambano. And as long as I have student loans, I have to drop a Greek word in there every now and then. <laughs> it's part of my commitment with Sally Mae. And um, so this Greek word, grasp, katalambano, 
is the same word that's used in like wrestling. So for those of you who do jujitsu or wrestling or have seen a, a, a match, nobody just stands there and lets you grab them. They're moving around. They're making every effort to dodge you, to make it difficult for you to grab them. And what Paul is saying is that our flesh is slippery. It knows how to evade the efforts that we want to put on it. And Paul is saying, I pray that you have the power to grasp yourself so that you can comprehend what is, how deep and wide is the love of God for us. And so we need to normalize difficulty that you're going to have. Uh, the second thing I think we need to do is we need to identify what are those actual distractions in our life. Now, for many of us, the distraction is not far from you. It's, it's this thing in your pocket. It's your phone. Some of you have it in your hand right now. I saw some people putting their phones down. You can have your phone out. <laughs> Just take notes. Just don't get off of Twitter and take notes. Social media, for example, is something that, that really truly robs us of our attention in very dangerous ways if we let it. Now, normally we don't do this because uh, we don't want anybody to feel ostracized, but today, for the sake of a sermon illustration, we're going to do it. Um, I want everybody to raise your hand if this applies to you. Have you ever, like, been on a social media app, closed it, and then opened it right back up again, like, three seconds later? Let's, re let's get free. Let's get free. Come on, y'all. <laughs> if you saw somebody who didn't have their hand up, we just pray for them for their spirit of dishonesty. <laughs> No, but there's a lot of y'all in here who raised your hand, um, and it's funny, but it's also like a sign of compulsive behavior. It's like what addicts do. They run away from something, and they go right back to it within seconds, and that's because, to a certain extent, we've been, like, reprogrammed the way that we, like, live life. Our, our brains are being reprogrammed every single day. There's this one um, person in, who worked in social media. Uh, tried to warn people about the dangers of our phones and what they're doing to our brains, and he wrote this. This thing is a slot machine. Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. And there's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you used to using the product for as long as possible. And here's a line that just cut me to the core. They're not programming apps. They're programming people. They do this by two things. One is called intermittent positive reinforcement, and the other one is the drive for social approval. Intermittent positive reinforcement is the like you get on your Instagram photo, the comment on your post, or the retweet. And what these things do to us is they trigger a chemical response in your brain that releases dopamine every time you get it. So your brain is being rewired to seek after pleasure by going to these apps. Now, I got Ds in biology, so please don't uh, take what I'm saying too seriously. But our brains have these neural pathways which are being built all the time, which basically, as I understood it, is this. Whatever you do, your brain will make it easier for you to do that thing over and over and over again. Whether it's good or bad, we have neural pathways that are like highways that are being built in our brain that make it so that whatever you do a lot of, it will make it easier for you to do that thing. So if you are used to searching for a dopamine hit from social media, your brain will construct a highway, a neural pathway of highways that says, if you want to feel better, go back to the app. And so we need to be um, very wise in the way that we approach uh, social media as, as one thing. 
And here's why. Part of the reason that people find the Bible to be boring is that we are expecting the Bible to do for us what give us the same feeling that TikTok does. The Bible is not meant to give you a dopamine hit. The Bible is not meant to give you intermittent positive reinforcement. The Bible is meant to point your attention away from your life to the sovereign, eternal God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And God's primary gracious means to us of transformation, stillness, solitude, scripture, prayer, confession, none of these things will give you a dopamine hit. And so I'm not saying social media is a devil. Today is not my day off. I'll be on social media later on today. But we would be very wise to exercise caution and boundaries in the way that we use social media. In my life, this is how I do it. I take off one day a week, one week a month, one month a year. And I do this to cut off the automatic knee-jerk response that Jordan gets every single time I'm used to using social media. And if I go too long without any break, I start to notice the compulsive behavior in my life. I'm unable to pay attention and focus on the things that I want to pay attention to. And I would commend you to do the same thing. Um, this goes all to my, uh, all my iPhone users, uh, the Droid users. I don't know what to say to you today, but... Uh, <laughs> There's a screen time app on iPhones that has been like really like super helpful for me. When I don't have the discipline to cut myself off, uh, Jessica, my wife, has my, she has my password for my screen time. So after a certain period of time, I'm locked out of the app and I'm not smart enough to figure out a workaround yet. So, I mean, that's just it. That, that's just your social media for the day. And I would encourage you to give your screen time password, set a limit and give the password to your best friend. Don't let them tell you. That way you know at the end of whatever period of time you have determined is what you need or what you want to have for social media for a day. When it's gone, it's gone. And so and I'd also encourage people to take periodic detoxes from social media and your phone in general. Go out for a walk and leave your phone behind unless you truly need it. So uh, the third thing I think we need to do is we need to confront the idols in our life um, to make room for God. Um, when we regularly are distracted by something, we should take note. Our attention often runs to what is important to us, so distraction can reveal what we actually love. When you find yourself routinely distracted by something, instead of just brushing it away, ask yourself the question, why am I going back to this thing over and over again? And it might reveal some things in our life. And last thing is to make every effort uh, Paul says this in Philippians 3 and 12. He says, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken of, hold of by Christ Jesus. And so I want us to look at a little bit today of what it would look like for us to make an effort to have solitude with God, to put ourselves in a position that we have removed some distraction from our life to attune to God the Holy Spirit so we can actually grow in the way that he intends for us and wants for us to grow. And so I want to spend the rest of today talking about a rhythm of solitude that I want to invite you into this week. And it has five movements to it. And you can spend more time on one of these than the others. Um, but the first things first is you need to plan some time to be away. There are no mountains in Harlem that you can escape to. There will be reggaeton blasting out your window as soon as you sit down to do this. That being said, we all can make an effort to set aside a time. What gets planned gets done. 
And so I really want us thinking about what is going to be our time. And when we have a time, and when we are alone, I want us to do these five things. The first one is to relax. To relax. Pay attention to your breath. When you sit down, let your body feel the weight of your body in the chair. The second thing, uh, actually back up a little bit to relax. In a lot of ways, and there's a lot of traditions that do meditation and they do breathing and different things, all which are very helpful, but the goal of Christian solitude is not to clear your mind. The goal of Christian solitude is to commune with God. So when we relax, when we sit down, when we feel our, the weight of our bodies and our chairs, our goal is to attune ourselves to the living God who wants to commune with us. Number two, this one is a, a challenge for, for me, it's to release. And it is this posture of taking our entire life before God and saying, Lord, your will be done. It's not striving. It's not trying to earn anything. After we've relaxed in God's presence, we are now releasing our self-will to him. One of my mentors, Pete Scazzaro, says this, our core spiritual problem is self-will. We all want a spiritual life, but prefer to be in charge of it and have it unfold according to our schedule and in our way. Ouch and amen. So number two is to release. Number three is to look. To look at Jesus in scripture. Now, one of the goals of solitude is not to empty ourselves, but to fill ourselves with God's word to us. And here's why. Whatever has your attention will determine the direction of your life. Whatever has your attention will determine the direction of your life. This past Friday, uh, my wife and I went out to one of our favorite restaurants. Shout out to Maison Harlem on 127th. And um, we sat down, had the seafood risotto out there. It's nice and hot. And my wife said a scripture that day that I've been thinking about that has been, I hope, directing the direction of my life for the last couple of days. As she pointed my attention away from all the things that I was pouring out to her, towards Jesus. And she said this scripture from Luke 12. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Here's a question that Jesus says, I've looked to that has been feeding me these last couple of days. Aren't you worth more than the birds? Can any one of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do this one little thing, why worry about the rest? And in solitude, when we look at a scripture, we are allowing God to have our attention. And when he has our attention, he can change the direction of our lives. He can change the focus from our problems to him as well. The fourth thing to do this week is to listen Spend some time reflecting on what you have seen in Scripture, and this requires that you're not rushing. You know, there's a book called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. Um, I didn't read it, but the title sounded really good. And <laughs> in the title, essentially, is all I needed to know, um, that we move too fast for God, that we're always in a rush, and that Jesus walks at three miles an hour, and if you want to walk with Jesus, you need to stop rushing so much. So... As we listen, we're spending time expecting that God wants to speak to us, and we're allowing God to speak to us based on what we have just heard in the scripture. And the last one is love. You know, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a couple days ago, 
And I said, you know what? I, I feel like rewriting my job description and my job title to say that I am a worship pastor. And it's not because I can sing, because Lord knows I have the worst voice in this entire congregation. I have no musical skill. But I've realized that the goal of it all is love. It's not time away. It's that you and I would grow in affection for God. And my job, properly understood, is not so people would come to church, not so people would memorize things, although memory is helpful, but so that we would grow in our love and our affection for God. We would love, learn to love him more than we love the things in front of us. That is the great command, to love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So in these times when we are sitting there, we are relaxing, we are releasing, we are looking, we are listening, hopefully, and we are loving. Lord Jesus, uh, you know the many things right in front of us today, the distractions, the to-do list, all of the things. Lord, I pray that you would allow us this week the courage, the discernment, so that we can be a little less distracted tomorrow than we are today. Lord, I pray for you to surround us with people that can keep us accountable to do the things that we, you are calling us to do. And Lord, I pray that in it all, we would meet you. We would meet you, Lord. And we would grow more and more to learn about you and to love you. We ask all of us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.